0: and welcome back to Evolving Prisons with me, Kagan Carey. Today I speak with Sinem Boskurt. Sinem was a prison officer in England for a year and a half before she was caught taking contraband into prison for an incarcerated individual. She then went on to serve a prison sentence herself. Today, she speaks about her time as an officer, what was going on in her life that contributed to her taking in contraband, and her time serving a sentence. We discuss whether the training equips officers to do the job expected of them, whether prison is a necessary punishment for some offences, and how three people can be convicted of similar offences, yet get very different outcomes. I hope you enjoy this episode. So Sinam, do you want to just start by telling us about how you became a prison officer in England?
1: Yes, so I graduated from my BA Ons in Criminology and went straight into looking for jobs. I wanted to start with probation, but they wanted experience. I wanted youth work. They wanted experience. Experience wasn't something that I could have done because I had two babies during university. So my only experience was actually changing nappies other than, you know, textbook knowledge. And then I heard about the prison service who were not looking for any experience. So I applied and I actually got in quite smoothly.
0: Perfect. What prison did you work in? I worked in HMP Isis. Okay, and can you just tell us a little bit about what kind of prison that was?
1: So it was I and young adults. The age range at the time was 18 to 30-year-olds. I think that's changed now. Um, it was males, so males, 18 to 30-year-olds.
0: Perfect. And were they in for specific crimes? Was it a high-security prison or, or was there a lot of different...? No, it was Category C, so it was more like a training prison, Um no lifers. Perfect and when were you a prison officer?
1: I joined the service in January 2015.
0: Okay and when did you finish being a prison officer?
1: Uh, July 2016 so a year and a half.
0: Okay and how did you find the training for being a prison officer?
1: The training was in the long run it wasn't helpful. The training involved a lot of, I mean, let me tell, let me put it this way. The one thing that always, I always have on my mind from the training is be friendly, but not friends. Always about suspicion, always about, you know, catching them out and even towards your own colleagues. A lot of control and restraint, which I get, you know, you need to have the kind of physical size to it as well. It was... Ten weeks, eight weeks of it was in the classroom, two weeks of it was shadowing in the prison. Was it enough? Absolutely not.
0: Yeah, I've heard that. I've um, done some research with prison officers in relation to their training specifically. And although it was in Scotland, they very much said the same thing that I think theirs is 12 weeks. And in that time, there's no way it can prepare you for the job expected on you.
1: Absolutely not, because you are prepared for... As I said, be friendly, but not friends. That basically means don't ever trust them. Always be on the lookout, always be prepared for some kind of chaos, how to conduct a cell search, how to do fabric checks, a lot of the practical sides of it. But when you walk in on someone that's just self-harmed, how do you deal with that?
0: Yeah. And and how do you deal with that? What happens? Did, are you just expected to go in and get on with it or...?
1: No, the so the, the main thing is you don't deal with anything on your own. It has to be free members of staff at all times, you know, if you're opening the door or if there's a situation. I'm sure there was some things to do with self-harm, but I actually can't remember in the training. So I'm assuming actually it wasn't a major part of it because it's completely gone over my head. But I can say the first time I saw someone self-harm, I simply wanted to run out of there and go home because I didn't know what to do. All I could see is blood. i just did not know how to react because you're not prepared
0: yeah and that will then put you into flight or fight mode your adrenaline's going and of course as you say you were obviously in that that flight and I think that happens to a lot of people I've heard of prison officers doing the training going on to the landing and never coming back after their first shift because the training did not at all equip them for what they were going to see No. And actually,
1: when I came back from training and I was now due to shadow someone for two weeks, as the senior officer was taking me onto the wing, he opened the double gates and then he said to me, whatever you learned in the training, forget about it because it starts now.
0: Yeah. And you are dealing with people that society or the criminal justice system has deemed far too dangerous to be out in the public. It's a lot for you to be asked to just forget everything and start right now with the people in front of you. Absolutely. And you do walk in with that mentality. You do walk in with these people are going to be so
1: dangerous. It's not until you actually spend some time in the job and you realize they're all humans, you know. Yeah. Some of them have made mistakes. Some of them have, are in here because the law says it's a crime.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And obviously one of the, the main aims of prison is rehabilitation. In your training. Was there much on rehabilitation, how to help the people in prison? It wasn't.
1: As I said, it was preparing you for safety, security. Yes, you need to support them, but it was more about how do you get this paperwork done? How do you fill in an act document, which is for people that self-harm? So a lot of the practical sides. Um, Rehabilitation is... Is a term that's thrown in a lot, but I don't think there's actually any kind of deep level of understanding around what rehabilitation means. I personally, looking back at the time I was an officer, I could definitely say there were some people in there that didn't actually require rehabilitation. They just needed a hand. They just needed a good chance in life. What do we even mean by rehabilitation?
0: Well, that's the thing because to rehabilitate somebody makes, you know, it suggests that they were habilitated at some point. And if somebody is born deprived, they don't get the help they need. How can we rehabilitate somebody who's never been habilitated in the first place?
1: Absolutely. And, and if we were to take it even further, we want to, OK, a big proportion of the prison population are drug dealers or, or cannabis dealers who we would say require rehabilitation. But if we then take them to Amsterdam, that rehabilitation goes out the window because actually what they're doing is perfectly legal. So there's so many issues around it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It depends on the country, doesn't it? Absolutely. So I, I need
1: rehabilitation here, but then if I fly out to Amsterdam or somewhere similar, I'm not going to be in need of anything.
0: Yeah. So with the with the job then, what kind of things were you doing on, on a daily basis?
1: It was a lot of lock doors, unlock doors, you know, keep the regime going. So very first thing in the morning, they need to go out for exercise. So you do one round of unlock and then lock again. Half hour later, bring them back in, lock the doors again and then unlock again for education and then lock again. Let the cleaners out. They come back from education, get any paperwork done. There was just a lot of locking and unlocking. I'm not trying to dismiss any of the kind of work some of the prison officers do. It's it's a lot. It's very difficult. But if we were to talk about the regime and how a day goes, you simply have no time to work with these people individually. You know, they all have different needs, they all have different requirements, they all have different worries and priorities. And if there's three of you on the wing and there's 80 prisoners, you are not going to have the time to get to know their name.
0: Yeah. Sadly I've heard that. I've spoken to officers in Scotland who say the same. They say it's very much warehousing. And
1: it's and it's behaviour management, you know, it, it's all of that, yeah.
0: And they've said the same that half the time you don't even know these people's names, never mind about their story and how you can help them.
1: Absolutely. You simply do not have the time. And if you were to try to have time, I was referred to as a care bear for quite a long time, then it damages your health because you are likely to go home with high blood pressure. You're likely to take on too much. And especially where some things are out of your control, it gets very difficult.
0: Yeah, you take on other people's feelings and emotions probably. And presumably you're not trained for that either. Going home and, I don't know, just making your dinner in silence and all of a sudden remembering what that person's been through and knowing that you can't do much.
1: I remember actually I left after an evening shift once and I called in the night's officer because I remembered that someone wanted to go on the nurse's list for a toothache and I phoned back in to say, I completely forgot to put his name. Can you put it down, please? And the officer laughed at me. He said, really, go home. But I... I couldn't, um, you know, as a person, I just couldn't get past certain things.
0: Yeah, I have heard that. But I've spoken to people who have been in prison and, and they said that they'll ask numerous times for their names to be put down on a list and it never was. So it's, it's amazing that you were one of the officers that cared. However, what toll is that taking on you when you're trying to remember that for up to 80 people in prison? But
1: when you are that person, it's also difficult for you from the staff point of view as well because it's not really liked
0: so it's interesting you say that so the culture within the prison then what was it like
1: yeah that's where I was going the the culture so we we talk about a police force culture actually the prison service one is very similar as well it is certainly us against them when you are in the hub so you have the middle hub in the morning you'll have a briefing and then After lunch, you'll have a briefing and it's all about what the prisoners have done, which ones to look out for, what's happened during the day. I don't know how to explain it. It's just that little circle, that little click. And there is no way any prison is going to get anything out of that. It's quite a horrible culture. And again, I don't want to generalise and apply it to all officers, but from what I saw, it was quite a horrible culture. It was a horrible culture for us as prison officers as well, because I was a female, an ethnic minority female in a predominantly white male service. And you do stand out like a sore thumb. You do, especially when, you know, Turkish people have quite a bad reputation in terms of drugs. So the ongoing joke was, you know, you've probably got uncles that are dealing or you've got And if a Turkish prisoner will come on, you know, is is he in competition with your family now? So these kind of nasty jokes, there was definitely, definitely a click going. I can't see any prisoner getting any support from that kind of click that was present there.
0: Yeah, that's really sad to hear especially when you were one of their colleagues and, and that's been said to you, it does make you wonder how they are treating the people in prison because there is, of course, a power imbalance that exists. You are responsible for feeding that person, locking them up, unlocking them. It does cause me concern. I've, I've heard about, uh, not everyone, but a lot of people who work in prison, they do have that macho culture. And how is that being portrayed onto the, the people in prison? And
1: to be sexually objectified as well as an officer, where, as I said, you're in a predominantly male service, um, you're in the hub and there's all the jokes, all the banter relates to women and their body parts. And, and you kind of get drawn into that as well. You become a part of that as well. Yeah.
0: yeah. Sadly, you are the, the average of the people you spend most time with, they say. And as a prison officer, you spend most of your time at work. So it would be hard not to be sucked into to a negative culture.
1: And when I say you become a part of it, I mean, you become a part of those jokes, as in you are, you form those jokes too, because you are also sexually objectified and you are also actually, looking back, harassed, but you can't say anything, you know, and and this is something that us women have everywhere, and it's no different there, you just get on with it.
0: Yeah, but you shouldn't have to. No,
1: absolutely not. I mean, I wouldn't today, but... Going back, I was 26. I had no clue about anything. I was very naive and yeah, I kind of dropped into a culture that I just couldn't make sense of.
0: And that's the difficulty with the prison service where you perhaps don't need a degree, you perhaps don't need much life experience. How many people are going into the prison service who are naive and actually probably aren't prepared to be taking on the mammoth task expected of them?
1: Absolutely not absolutely not you are nowhere near prepared as you said with very little life experience you are nowhere near prepared to support people in the correct way stand up for yourself and in, in the correct way you know um yeah it, it's there is no preparation involved in that sense
0: mm-hmm. which is perhaps why also there's such a high staff turnover in relation to to prison officers because people don't realize what they're getting themselves in for no
1: no absolutely not you you have no idea until you're actually in there because even with control and restraint training and everything, okay you need to learn the techniques but it's all in the perfect scenario where you've got someone standing there with their arms out and they're going to let you restrain them they're going to allow you to do this or even with these scenarios of trying to persuade someone or an or an actor to stop self-harming or, s- or hand over a phone it's the best scenario you say the right
0: words he's going to give it to you. I mean in practice I never saw that happen. Yeah, of course there's often a lot of struggle involved isn't it because they don't want to be res- restrained
1: they don't want to be restrained they don't want to hand over anything they don't and this is i mean quite naturally i'm I'm only given the specific examples kind of to show how problematic it is in the sense that training doesn't prepare you for anything
0: Yeah. And it's hard because it's one of those jobs where you can't learn in a classroom what is expected of you. However, you also can't just be thrown on the job on the first day and expected to just get on with it.
1: I was supposed to, so everyone's assigned a mentor at the beginning. The mentor that I was assigned, me and him didn't work the same shift for the first two months. So I didn't have have anything to do with him until two months in. And within a month of being there, they switched around staff and they put me on a wing that they used to talk about in the hub as the jungle. So I was just the thought of it. I was petrified, petrified that from one day I'm going to be starting this wing, which everyone's talking about as the jungle and how crazy it is and how everything goes on in there. And I still haven't had anything to do with my mentor.
0: Wow. And what did they mean by that? Was it quite a, a hard wing to be working in?
1: Well, when I got there and I think I started getting to know the prisoners, actually, it wasn't the jungle. <laughs> they were just quite loud and lively and they had their own clique because you tend to put prisoners in with ones that they won't have conflicts with. So you end up having gangs associated with each other on certain wings. And I mean, I saw it as they lived there.
0: Yeah, uh, having not been in that wing before, of course you'd be terrified when you're hearing things like that.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. The very first door I had to open to take him to his medications when he when it, when I opened the door and saw him, I always say I'm pretty sure he took me to his medication. I didn't take him anywhere because <laughs> I felt weak at my knees. He was three times my size. Um, I, I was petrified.
0: Of course. I've actually heard of officers who have been transferred to prisons in Scotland and they've just been told, go and get this prisoner and take him here. And they've said, I don't have a clue where I'm going. And like yourself, it was it was a female, quite young. And she said the same. She said, I was relying on this person who was in prison. I was trusting him to take me to the right place, but he could have taken me anywhere.
1: Oh yeah, I did that for a very long time, You know, until I got kind of just of how the prison worked and it was always cleaners that would help me, you know, you need to open that door, you need to let them know on the radio, open that door so we can throw the bins out and then you lock the door back, you know, it was crazy because they were helping
0: me. Which is scary that you're having to rely on them to help you when when you're supposed to be the one with the power.
1: Yes, absolutely, but then that's when you realise actually how human they are.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and we have this bias where we almost expect them to do bad things but actually we need to remember they are human beings who oftentimes are good people they've just made mistakes.
1: Exactly and that goes back to the point that I made of the training preparing you for war almost you know the always to always be suspicious and to never trust but then actually when you get to know them as you said they are human beings and If you can work right around them they are going to do a lot just out of respect as well they're not going to while out on you or they're not going to you know they're not creatures they are not creatures people work on respect and i can definitely say it worked for me
0: yeah that's amazing so i just want to talk to you about what happened then when you were an officer so sadly you ended up taking in contraband for for prisoners are you able just to tell me about how what led up to that happening and just explain what happened
1: yeah. So me taking in contraband wasn't actually anything to do with prisoners. I mean, obviously, I took it for them, but it wasn't, it didn't start with prisoners. I was in a abusive relationship for about 10 years um, with the father of my children. I don't want to get into that too much, but that was kind of escalating. And when I joined the prison service, it got even worse because it was now kind of threatened with masculinity because I was now finding my voice. I was now feeling like I had power and controlling people. But we also had a lot of debt laying over my head because everything was under my name. Eventually something went even more wrong and I just said right enough I I can't do this anymore and it got worse. It got worse in terms of stalking behavior and the controlling or whatever but then he brushed his hands off me financially and that was his way of saying Let's see you survive, you know, because you're going to come back to me. You're not going to pay, be able to pay any of these. And where the prison service is not a very family-friendly job, I normally relied on him to look after the children while I was doing, you know, ridiculous amount of hours a week trying to pay everything off. But then that stopped because he wouldn't look after the children either. So I had to go into work. The custodial manager at the time was very helpful. He reduced my hours to 24 a week. Which he tried to do with all good intentions, but then it didn't help because now I'm I'm, I'm earning less. You know how, how how does that even work when the problem is that I need more financial support? But he did try, and then I approached the duty governor. This is before anything went wrong. I approached the duty governor, and I'll never forget that day in his office. I told him what had happened, and they all knew kind of what was going on i oh, not home anyway. I said, you know, this is what's happened. I've left, but I need help. I can't. All this financial debt and whatever. And he handed me a charity card and he said, call them. They should be able to help you. Okay, but there's one thing that you're missing here. I'm telling you about financial issues. I'm telling you about, you know, domestic abuse or violence. Are you not having any kind of inkling about my mental health? Are you not wondering what's going on in my head if I'm telling you all of this you know anyway he put me back on the wing and I carried on barking but obviously our prisoners have nothing to do all day so even if you change the shape of your eyebrow they're going to notice so they're noticing so much you know I'm breaking down I'm you know I'm not me anymore and one of the prisoners was constantly telling me if it's money you can make money it's money you can make money you can do this you can get you can can solve your problems it will only be for as long as you want at the time I wasn't having it at all um because I actually have a personal issue with drugs as in like I've lost someone to it so and I wasn't not going to touch it at all but one morning I got a repossession order for my flat so now I've lost everything I'm losing everything one by one and now my flat is about to go and I've got two babies at home and I phoned him and I said, are you going to help me? And he said, let's see you do it on your own. And so I did. I did. I didn't even think twice. I went straight to the prison and I went straight to that person and I said, okay, let's do this. I said, but I need it now. I need the money right now. And I, and I paid my rent straight away. And then obviously once you're in, you're in. You can't just walk back out. But I can never say that I was kind of, forced or anything at the beginning this it was purely to do with my personal situation it was nothing to do with the prisoners yes they were trying to manipulate me but I mean a lot of them do that
0: yeah it's probably a a thing that you need to battle against often where they'll try and manipulate you and you have to prevent it
1: and I think that's the one thing you are really well trained for so um, there was no issues there there was absolutely no issues there but as I said it was I I couldn't put it on anyone because it was my personal situation.
0: Okay. So what were you taking in for them and and how often would it happen?
1: Cannabis, phones. It wouldn't, well, actually, I don't want to get into how often or anything because (laughs) I never have. But yeah, it did happen for a little while.
0: Okay. And when you said it was difficult to get out of, is that because they'd kind of put pressure on you to keep doing it? I mean, towards the end,
1: Yeah, they've now got you. So it's never if you don't do this, well, I'll kill you. But it's the very indirect. You know, are you sure you want to stop? Do you really think you could do that now? And how how did you get caught? What happened? That final morning, I walked in, and actually, what happened was again, my mental health was probably going, getting even worse than what it was at the beginning because I've now gone from one kind of situation to a complete different one, and and this one is. You know, the consequences are severe. So, that more the day before, I spoke to the prisoner and I said, This is it, you know, I'll bring whatever you want tomorrow, and then that will be it. I'm not doing anything again. And he respected that. And so, that morning, I went in, didn't take anything. The lunchtime, I was just walking back in, and they stopped me. And they said, You know, we're, we're doing random searches. Obviously, it wasn't random that I was targeted, I know that. But yeah, that's how it came to an end.
0: Okay. So do you think you were targeted because somebody knew what was going on?
1: Yeah. So when I looked at my court papers, I actually found that I'd been, there was there had been surveillance on me since I approached the duty governor.
0: Wow. But they hadn't done anything to try and support you? No. And actually,
1: two days before this happened, I said to the senior, I don't want to come in for the next two days because I was trying to get out. And he actually said, no, 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 you you honestly have to. And then I, again, going back to the court papers, I noticed that off the police officers, the CID, were waiting outside the gate for two, three days. So everything was well planned. Now, I'm not trying to come across as a victim here. Obviously, I was doing something that was unlawful. Um, but it's just the way that it all happened. And,
0: Yeah. Wow, that's really sad having surveillance on you from the time that you disclose the issues that you're having. It's almost like setting you up to fail, thinking that you're going to do something rather than being like, well, how can we support her?
1: Absolutely. And do you know what, I and, and particularly from prisoners where I'm very used to hearing, it wasn't my, f- I was at the wrong place at the wrong time or I didn't get the support. I'm, I can though in all confidence say that they set me up to fail because had I been supported at the very beginning when I approached the duty governor if someone is a victim of domestic violence you do not put them on the wing to control 80 people because they can't they're not in a position to and you wouldn't do that to anyone else
0: yeah and the domestic violence, but as you say, also the financial problems, your mental health. Absolutely. So many things where you wouldn't have been in the right frame of mind. Most people would have been able to see that. So what happened next after after you were, you were caught?
1: So, yeah, the uh, CID came straight in. They took me to the police station, so I was arrested and taken to the police station. Actually, the CID were amazing. They were so supportive. I was at the station for a couple of hours, and then, you know, after an interview, they let me go home. So I had I was on unconditional bail. I was due to travel to Turkey the next day, so I done that. The police officer actually, the, when the custody sergeant asked the CID if there was any conditions on my bail, he said no, which surprised me. And then he just looked at me and said, "Grab your children and go on holiday." And that was that was so nice. That was so nice of him. And I did exactly that. I was away all of that summer.
0: Okay. And was that while they were putting a case together or was this you waiting to go to court?
1: No, they were putting a case, but I was also waiting for my first hearing.
0: Okay. And then how long between that happening and the was it a trial or did you plead guilty?
1: I pleaded guilty straight away.
0: Okay. And when was your sentence handed down from when you went to Turkey?
1: Um, I was sentenced a year later so July 2016 I was caught and then April 2017 was my court hearing.
0: Okay so I've read um, an article that you wrote and it was very interesting about what happened to you and from the article I got the gist that you never expected to go to prison because of somebody else in the field who'd done something similar and never went to prison. So tell me a little bit about that. I
1: mean, beyond that, I expected to go the first time I had my sentencing hearing. And when I when I wasn't given a custodial sentence, I was then confident that the case was done. But then we went back to square one. So there was a female. I don't want to give too much detail, but there was a white female that was working at a Category A male prison, I think about six months before me. She was in a relationship with one of the lifers. You know, she was taking in several things for him and she was caught too. And she had five counts on her. So, five charges of, you know, relationship and sexual and cannabis and whatever. And she was given a suspended sentence that was appealed by the Attorney General. And she ended up at the Court of Appeal within a couple of weeks. And the Court of Appeal judges, actually agreed with the initial judge's decision, saying that they didn't want to damage her future and that they felt that the initial judge's decision was very brave and long-sighted because given that she'd fallen, fallen in love with a prisoner, she was very vulnerable. Now, if we then look at my case, I was at court for two counts of conveying articles into a prison and the judge gave me a suspended sentence And then I was at the Court of Appeal because actually a member of parliament appealed. And the judges said that my initial judge was not only lenient, he was unduly lenient. And that the decision could not stand because my offence was committed for venal motives. And they basically just branded me as greedy. Wow. So I always say, and I will forever say, I'm not saying that I didn't do anything wrong, nor am I saying that I shouldn't have been punished. Although, I mean, what what does punishment do? That's even questionable. But I want to see consistency. Why is one different to the other? There was also, which wasn't in that article, but it is in my PhD, there was also a black female officer who was charged probably just about a year or under a year before me for one charge of cannabis, one possession of cannabis. And she was also, she she also pleaded guilty and she was given three years more, four months custodial. I was given two years, eight months custodial and the white female officer was sent home on a suspended sentence. It's plain, it's there. There's shades to sentencing. There are clear shades to sentencing, you know. I didn't get the harsh punishment that the black female got, although my ch- I had more charges than her. I also didn't get the leniency that the white female got.
0: And just for listeners who aren't in England, what is a suspended sentence? So a suspended sentence is basically a custodial sentence that is not
1: activated. So you've been given two years or one year prison sentence, but you've been told you can go home. As long as you don't commit any further offences, this sentence will not be activated. If you commit anything further, then it will be you will go straight into prison. So it's basically giving you another chance.
0: And as you say, all three of you were were in the same boat where of course what you you did was wrong. You're trusted by the state to do the job for on behalf of the states. However, all three of you did similar things. So we either should be obviously we don't have access or I certainly don't have access to the information in relation to each of the cases. However, you'd expect you either all go to prison or none of you go to prison.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And for me, the the argument uh, put forward by the member of parliament who was actually praising the final judges in parliament because he felt that he'd achieved something major, although I don't know what politicians are doing interfering with judicial decisions. But anyway, his problem was that I was a woman and that I shouldn't be given a lenient sentence just because I'm a woman. And then for the judges, the final judges, my parental status the issue you know parenting should cannot be used as a trump card to avoid jail you'd almost think that I put my children out there to say oh hold on a minute please don't do this I have children
0: okay so you eventually got a prison sentence and how long was your sentence for my sentence was
1: two years eight months so I had to serve half of that which would have been 16 months but I was released on home detention curfew so released early good behavior however there's one thing that I do want to say from when I was on bail I immediately signed up to study to a master's a master's in criminology so I was when I came to the court hearing I was one piece of work away from graduating I only had one outstanding and I'd been accepted onto a PhD program at my university to start that same year but the judge actually said that I was this all of this meant that I was too intelligent to avoid prison so my my degree and my my master's was was a problem, although wouldn't you think that this person is already trying to make an effort already trying to move forward so you're putting me in prison that could have meant the university just you know threw my studies away because I'm now convicted, and what would I have done post release
0: that's where i um have an issue with prisons in terms of of course there are people who need to go to prison if they pose a risk to society but oftentimes when we put people to prison not only is it costing the taxpayer an absolute fortune but it's also just disrupting the person's life what you did of course it wasn't okay however are you a risk to society no you're not and the fact that you're studying as you say you are bettering yourself so why are we putting you in prison to then Sixteen months later, or whenever you get out, you're on a back foot and have to effectively start again.
1: Absolutely. Now, just on the on the topic of level of risk, when I was sentenced at the Court of Appeal, they allowed me to go home for four days to sort out my childcare. So I was sentenced in a very odd way. You know, I left the court and I was phoning my mum to say it. I've just been given two years, eight months. And she's like, no, I could hear the bus. You're coming home. <laughs> it was it was a very, you know, it was almost like living Orange's new black where I had to drive myself to the prison. But I was allowed to come home. So that's the first point of trust there already. If you know that I can come home and you trust me to surrender four days later, why the hell are you making me surrender anyway? But I came home. I came home on the first day. I surrendered on the Monday afternoon. And then I was taken to HMP Brunsfield. On my sixth day at HMP Brunsfield, the caseworker came down and said, do not unpack anything. You're getting shipped out to East Sutton Park. And East Sutton Park is an open prison. So that was a relief, but it also made me angry. Because if within the first 10 days, you trust me to be in open conditions and trust me not to abscond, why am I here anyway? Why am I away from my children? How is this helping anything?
0: Yeah, I, I found that when I read your article, I, I thought that was mind-blowing, actually. I've never heard of that happening, where no. <laughs> I, I used to work in a court and every single person who got a prison sentence got taken down the stairs by G4S straight away and that was them. I, I was My mind was blown that you got to go home for four days because, yes, you might have surrendered your passport rent and I'm not sure, however... I didn't. Did you not?
1: No, they didn't even ask me for my passport. I had everything at home.
0: And how terrifying. Like massive credit to you that you went to the prison four days later because heaven forbid I was given a prison sentence and told go home for four days and then come back I don't know how I could I'd be absolutely petrified yeah yeah.
1: Although my brother did offer to take me to Turkey and I was like, yeah, but to, to, to escape for just to, to avoid a year, that's a bit embarrassing. <laughs>
0: I'm not sure, but prison prison terrifies me, so I uh, yeah. It was scary because
1: you also you those 4 days when you're d- taken down straight from the dock, you don't have any time to prepare or think or process, you're straight in. But with me, I I had I think I had too much time to think about what was going to happen, and obviously that makes it your anxiety hit the roof.
0: So you went to an open prison. Were you segregated from the general population? Were you considered, I'm not sure what the term would be, but a protected prisoner because you worked as a prison officer?
1: No, not at all. When I walked into open conditions, the officer that greeted me, who was then my offender supervisor, he was, he was my road to recovery, basically. He was amazing. And he took me straight up to the office and he said, look, you know, we, we know why you're here. It's not a problem for us. You won't get any kind of different treatment. But we ask that you don't tell the prisoners. But my immediate reaction was I'm not going to lie because I know how prison works. If you lie about something, you're either going to have to be a perfect liar and keep it going. Or when there's little gaps in your story, people are going to start assuming you're in for something completely different. And the last thing I'd ever want is for anyone to assume that I'm in for something that relates to children or whatever. So I was very open and just said it. And I never had any issues.
0: Okay. I was going to ask whether there was any issues with prisoners with that. No, 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 no. Actually,
1: it went the other way. I was a bit like Citizens Advice Bureau where prisoners would come and say, well, he said no,
0: can he do that? (laughs) You were kind of working still as a a mediator, probably. <laughs> yeah So how was it? Because I think it's easy to say that when you're working as a prison officer, it's very easy to say that prison is a deterrent because you see every day what it does. So it would be easy for somebody who was in a right state of mind to think, "I will never commit a crime because I don't want to live in these conditions." However, of course, you had so much going on at the time. When you were in prison as a prisoner, what was it like? Was it terrifying or were you a bit more prepared because you'd been a prison officer?
1: In terms of regime, I was prepared because I've been a prison officer. But then again, I because I went straight to open conditions and open conditions is totally different. So that was very new for me. But in terms of the environment, it was nothing like male prisons. It was actually a very vulnerable environment. Women tend to be very supportive of one another. And Yeah, so it was, I can't say I was fully prepared because it was very different, very, very different.
0: And nothing will probably prepare you for being on the other side of the door. I think, yeah, nothing can, nothing can.
1: And yes, anyone with a right mind would be in there and think, I am never coming back here again. But if you are to walk out and you go straight back to where you was before because you haven't had the correct support, that's not going to prevent you. That's not going to be a deterrence. And the fact is, unfortunately, prison is doable. You can get through prison. It's boring. It's soul-destroying. But if I talk from a women's, from the women's perspective, it's also safe. It's liberating, you know. For some women, you know, I I spoke to um, the prison officer at Brunsfield, and he said to me during the winter, we find that we get in a lot more prisoners. I mean, I wonder why.
0: Yeah, well, sadly, I've, I've seen it myself from working in the court and things where some people are just so desperate. They commit crime to go to prison and they, they admit that. And I've seen it on TV documentaries and things where people are cold, people are hungry. It's Christmas. So they, they will commit crime to go into prison. And it's so sad. Exactly. You do get turkey
1: on Christmas Day. And obviously, it's nothing like how these newspapers present it, you know, where it's a holiday camp and you get PlayStations and you get this. It is so far from that. As I said, I don't think anyone should ever lose sight of the fact that it is soul destroying. It is absolutely soul destroying. But as I said, for women, for some women in particular, it could be quite protective. It could be a place that gives them structure, which is so sad because if she is coming to prison for that structure, if she's coming to prison for that protection, There's, then there's something awfully wrong going on. You know, there's a systematic problem going on here because we failed them.
0: Yeah absolutely and the problem is that's the sad reality for so many people and there's so many changes we need to make to stop that because prison's one part you can do all the work in the world in prison but the minute you let that person out and they potentially are back with a domestic abuser or they're back in a circle that doesn't support you know the right side of the law then it probably is very easy to go back into that revolving door. Absolutely Um.
1: and Also, with women's prisons, it's either open conditions or closed conditions. There are no categories. So if you are in closed conditions, despite or regardless of your offense, you're going to be maximum security. When I walked in, I was on a wing where, you know, the woman on the right hand side had just stabbed her ex-boyfriend. The woman on this side had just stole something from a store or whatever. Um, We had a woman that killed five men. And, and the fact that I was able to spend time with her, that's scary. And that shouldn't happen. That should not happen. She has nothing to lose. She's there doing life without parole. And she's in normal population, whereas with men, you wouldn't have that.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's the problem with prison, isn't it? Is there are people in there who have nothing to lose. So what impact is that having on the staff? What impact is that having on other people in prison?
1: Yes. And the fact that this woman that has stolen something from the store is having to serve alongside these women and having to kind of be housed under these security measures, which are just so unnecessary for her. That is not right.
0: Yeah, it is absolutely terrifying. And in open conditions then... Was it quite conducive to helping you turn your life around? Because obviously when you come out of prison, you would have been starting again because you couldn't have gone back into the job that you did before. Did it help you? Absolutely, it did.
1: Now, open conditions, I have not a single negative thing to say. It was amazing. It was very therapeutic. Uh, The staff were very supportive. They were very approachable. The number one governor was very approachable. His office was just downstairs, so we were in dormitories. His office was downstairs and you could absolutely just knock on his door to have a conversation with him. He would walk around in, they called it a house, he would walk around in the house. It was such a humane environment. We were not prisoners, we were residents. It was not a prison, it was a house. The officers were, you know, always around and always ready to support. You had a lot of one-to-one help from your personal officer, your offender supervisor, and your caseworker. So there was a team of people that were working with you and for you. And they were able to address everything. So my offender supervisor, it took him quite a while to kind of crack me in terms of telling him what I'd been through, because it was also quite intimidating having to tell a man what a man had done. But he was amazing. And as soon as everything was out there. They arranged for a forensic psychiatrist to come in for three months, so I had therapy. While I was having the therapy, I was also out working on the farm for about six months, so I was with animals, and and they are the most therapeutic anyway. I really got to experience the farm life, and then, you know, you, you come back and you have loads of free time. You're not locked behind the door. They do expect you to be behind the door after 11 p.m., so they can do the count, but your toilet's not in this room either, so it's communal, and you are allowed to go out of the room. And from from five thirty am, you can leave the room, go make your tea or whatever, and have some time. It was in the middle of the field. You can go out to have plenty of fresh air. You can call your family whenever you want. Visits were much more relaxed, much more humane. My children never realised that they were coming to a prison because they weren't searched. It was just like a little visit centre. Three hundred meters from the house itself, and they would walk straight in. There'd be loads of toys. There was a garden area. You could take your child to the toilet, which sounds so silly, but it becomes a massive thing when you're in prison. You can be running around with them in the garden. I was able to have their birthdays there. You know, my parents were able to bring them a cake and celebrate Christmas. The officers used to dress up. You know, one of the officers was Father Christmas for the kids, and we were able to get them presents that were sent in from a charity it was just so supportive and so therapeutic and if you ever had any kind of issue it was going to be addressed as much as possible and and they were really really helpful another thing that I had was my lucky for me my studies were suspended well interrupted so I could continue at any time post-release so closer to my release my studies were reinstated so I started I continued studying from inside towards the end and where you normally would go out to work at a charity shop or something a kind of payback to the community while you're in prison the governor agreed to allow me to go out to my university instead because he said you know if this is going to help you in the long run why not and that was the first. yeah that was the first he signed it off so I was out I was at university in London two days a week. Through that, I actually started writing that article while I was coming out. Well, with my director, the person that's now the director of my PhD. So I had a lot going on. I had a lot going on. I was home every Saturday for my children. I was getting home leaves every month. So that was very therapeutic, very supportive. But then it just raises the question of why was I in there in the first place? I cost taxpayers tons of money because everything that I'm saying, everything that I'm laying out here, and I'm probably forgetting a couple of things, that will cost the prison a lot. You know, just providing my train tickets to come into London a couple of days a week. That could have all been prevented. I could have done everything they needed me to in the community. Women absconding is unheard of. We tend to follow the rules. Yes, we mess up, but we tend to follow the rules.
0: Mm-hmm. That's the thing. With that prison, it sounds incredible. And to me, that's the way prison should be. Of course, there are some people in prison who aren't ever getting out. What they've done is so terrible. But for the most part, while they have made mistakes and what they have done is bad, what's wrong with them having a therapeutic community? I just feel it's so inhumane to lock people in a tiny little dirty cell for most of the day. Put them in a therapeutic prison like that It's going to be less damaging for their mental health. But somebody like you, as you say, I I just can't see how you were a risk to society and had to be put into that environment.
1: I mean, I I don't know myself, (laughs) but the sad part of it is there's only 200 open spaces and there is approximately four to five thousand women in custody. How much of them are violent and significant risks to society not many I definitely believe we need prisons I'm never claiming that we don't having experienced both sides I'd certainly look at some people and think you absolutely need to be here because the minute you walk out someone will die but that is very rare that is only particularly with women that is only a couple a handful the rest who are we protecting the society from a sex worker someone that had a moment of rage after years of abuse fraud you know who are we physically particularly with sex workers they are the ones that need protection from society it's going the wrong way around
0: that's the thing of course people need to be punished fraud for example that's a good example where of course these people need to be punished if they've defrauded the government or defrauded other people however there are many other ways there are many community orders that we can give these people where prison is not a necessity.
1: Particularly with, well, fraud is one example. So you put someone in prison because they've defrauded the government or the whatever, and you're paying for their time in prison. So how does that make any logical sense? How does that make any logical sense? Someone that's in because they haven't paid their TV licence is then able to watch TV in prison for 50p a week. I mean, I just don't understand the logical kind of thing behind this.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I I don't know if this is why they do it. I'm not sure if it's a way to make a make a mark you know as a deterrent for other people that this is what you'll get if you do X, y, and Z. However, we are just taking money from the taxpayer money that could better go to giving us more prison officers given better prison conditions so that people in prison can actually be rehabilitated, giving us more police officers on the street so that we're safe, giving us, I don't know, more doctors and nurses so that they're not overwhelmed. However, instead, we're just putting people like yourself or people who have committed fraud into prison rather than giving them a much cheaper community sentence. Absolutely. So obviously that was a very difficult time in your life. You're out now. Tell us a little bit about what you do now.
1: I've been out for four years now. It will be four years next week. Um, I, As soon as I walked out, I went straight into completing my master's. And then within six months, I started the PhD. And I also started lecturing at a university. I've now just finished writing up my recommendations for my PhD. I'm hoping to also submit that next week. I focused on the prison and post-release experiences of minoritized mothers, so I fit every category of that as well. So, you know,
0: I think I'll be continuing in this field for a very long time. Fantastic. Well, I, like I say, I read your article. I found it absolutely fascinating. It was very, very interesting. So if people want to read that, where can they read the article that you wrote?
1: It's available on ResearchGate. Um,
0: yeah, but hopefully I'll be
1: having more from my coming out from my PhD, because that was that article was just based on my experiences when I'd first walked out. But now it will be kind of
0: supported with much more academic knowledge. Fantastic. So will that be available on ResearchGate as well when you publish it?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Perfect. Well, what I'll do is I'll pop a link to your article in the show notes so that people can read it and then they can just look out for more of your work coming out. hmm thank you so much for um, speaking with me you know you've been very vulnerable and I'm so grateful to you for sharing your story
1: thank you thank you for having me but finally just to say that despite everything I still see myself as very privileged and lucky in that situation because women really do suffer
0: absolutely they do have such a difficult time and a lot of them shouldn't even be in prison you know with their mental health conditions and stuff they, they shouldn't be there and we need to do more as a society to help them hope you enjoyed this episode. My key takeaways were that the training did not equip Sinem with the tools she felt she required to do the best job she could as an officer. She was told to forget everything she learned in training when she started the job and was quickly faced with situations she had no idea how to handle. Despite committing similar offenses people can be given very different sentences. While the prison Sinem was in was very therapeutic they only had space for around 200 prisoners yet there are thousands of female prisoners in prison and the only alternative is a high-security prison for women. This raises questions around whether all of the women in the high-security prisons require to be there, or whether we should have more therapeutic prisons like the one Sinem was housed in. As always, I'd be very grateful if you could please rate this podcast on whatever platform you listen to, and please reach out to me at evolvingprisons.com if you have any questions.